daddy come to us. Watch me do my stuff. <laughs> Hello there, gang. <laughs> I got around here. Hello, crowd. Ding dong, daddy. From Dumas. Is it was there such a song as that? Well, could, nobody could have written this. Oh, come on now. Oh, impossible. No, really. Was was there really such a song as that? All of a sudden, I'm sitting in here and, you know, deeply involved and concerned with putting on this epic here. Thousands of pieces from our vast trivia file, and all of a sudden, into my head came that thing. I'm a ding-dong daddy from Dumas. Watch me do my stuff. That's all I know. <laughs> That's enough, you damn well. I mean, you're right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, before we get underway here tonight, we have a uh, special uh, a special sports bulletin program. Good evening, sport fans. It's time once again for Sports Salute. Here, there, and everywhere in the exciting world of sports. Yes, the thrill of victory. The great, great sense of defeat. It's all here tonight in our salute, our tiny one-minute salute to a fighting soccer team. And tonight, our salute to sports salutes the soccer team from Cordoba, Argentina. An entire amateur soccer team. Yes, an entire amateur soccer team from Cordoba, Argentina, was jailed in Cordoba today after a linesman, a referee, was kicked to death by the players. Yes, fellas, it's not how you play the game, it's whether you win or not. We here in the sports corner recognize these things. And today, we'd like to salute a real fighting team. Hold it there, hold it there. Isn't that great? You never hear Howard Cosell talk about that kind of stuff in sports, you know. Hey, have you noticed Howard's got a tulip now? I saw him on TV. He's got... He looks like a guy walking around under a dead beaver. Did I like a little more of that? Will you please, Herb? Kind of nice one. Dear Miss Blake, I'm one of those 
ladies who jump out of a cake nude at bachelor parties. Once I was doing this and my husband was there. He didn't know what kind of work I did when I'd leave in the evenings to, well, moonlight. Now he wants a divorce, but I don't because I love him. Help. Sign sugar. <laughs> Please, Herb. Leave me a little... Any, anything. You just hit the button. It doesn't matter. What you should have done was give me that bump but dum bump Didn't come on. That's his chief equipment here. Got there. What are you going to do? It's all this wind-up equipment. There's nothing to do about it. Hey, we have a commercial here. Let's get it on before we get too deeply involved. We have Book Find with us here, Herb. All right, everybody, let's dance. All right, let's dance. Do you ever read in bed and laugh so hard the peanuts rolled off your belly or get so absorbed? I'm just reading, friends. I don't make the news. I only report it. Or get so absorbed in a book you forgot to set your alarm clock, but you didn't need it anyway because you stayed up all night. Well, Book Fine Club has books like that in that league. Make you laugh so hard that the peanuts roll off your bellies. Yes, sir. Great books like, uh... Like The Defense Never Rests. Very funny. By F. Lee Bailey. All kinds of great books of that type. Anyway, as a Book Fine member, all you need to buy are two more books a year. And, uh, they... They really, you know, they, they'll send you some great stuff, or at least make it available to you. If you call MU7-2552 as a Book Find Club member, and uh, you'll be right on the list there. Or send your name and address, no money, to Book Find, W-O-R, New York, 10018. All right, everybody, let's dance. Yeah, come on. Don't be an old wallflower there. Hey, you know, uh, speaking of uh, books, uh, that's... You know why they need book fine clubs, though, seriously? Because, unfortunately, all around the country, bookstores are, are very... are usually these days in our country, it's a sad fact, bookstores are generally just uh, stationary stores where they, where they specialize in dirty Christmas cards. Yeah, that's right. It, it, it's true. Uh, very few of them actually carry books anymore. And I'm getting letters from people all over the country, and I don't know what to do about it. It's just, it drives writers right up the wall. And I'm not kidding. I've gotten, oh, I don't know how many letters, hundreds, really, uh, from people all over the country asking where they can get copies of my book. And I don't know what to say. It's a double-day book, you know. And uh, but the bookstores just don't uh, carry books, really, many of them. They may carry the four or five, maybe the ten books that are on the top ten bestsellers, you know, in the New York Times. That's about it couple of books on stamp collecting. You know, if the, if, the, if the guy in the store is a stamp collector, Cuckoo himself, and uh, oh, a lot of Christmas cards and, you know, Easter cards and jazz like that. And, um, oh, you can buy all you want of Peanuts uh, sweatshirts and Linus towels. <laughs> but uh, try to get a book. It ain't easy. But uh, I don't know what to say. My only suggestion to any of you that have problems like that is to write to the publisher. Really. That's a fact. In other words, if you if you've been trying to get let's just and just for argument's sake, you would just take my book. I mean, you know, I know it's true of all all every other author I know has the same problem. Write to Doubleday, write in New York, and tell them you want to buy the book, and they'll make you know make it available. But that's just a, it's a big problem. How many how many bookstores do you think we got in this country? The whole country. I mean, real legitimate bookstores. You're in for a shock. This is a big country. Well, what if I told you that, that that there were less than 750 actual bookstores? 
The, in other words, bookstores, uh, that, the, that their prime uh, income is from books and not from, uh, you know, funny little notepaper that has a Lucy on it. But, uh, <laughs> no, it's a, it's a truth that there are only 740-some-odd bookstores, according to the last count. They're actually legitimate bookstores. That's fantastic. And you know that <clears throat> record stores, believe it or not, in spite of the fact that records are a big deal in this country, are even worse. There are, there are really many, many hundreds of cities, towns all over the country that have no bookstore, none whatsoever, and have no record shop. None whatsoever. Now, what do they have? Well, well, a McDonald's. <laughs> usually they have a, you know, they usually have a Dairy Queen, uh, a couple of SO stations, and a Shell station. But uh, try to try to get books. It's uh, not easy. You know, uh, speaking of uh, of books, I uh, I must uh, go on record here. Uh, I've been. Uh, I, like everybody else, I've been following this uh, Clifford Irving thing, and I wish the newspapers would quit calling it a hoax. It is not a hoax. Uh, there's a big difference between hoax and fraud. Yeah, that really is a world of difference. And uh, what the what the real difference is uh, to to get a technical that a, a a hoax is really an extended practical joke. In which point, in which case, the the hoax itself is aimed at producing a laugh or a joke. In other words, a big joke, or and uh, it may be a it may be something to uh, or make a comment on things. See, I was involved in one once. I heard a radio station here in town recently uh, compare uh, the I Libertine thing that I was involved in a few years ago with the Clifford Irving thing. It's not at all the same. That a hoax is a joke, really. And nobody gets hurt in a hoax, primarily. Whereas a fraud is is a, is a is a complex system, or in this case, it's a it's a complex thing designed primarily to get money. In other words, it's it's obtaining money under false pretenses. Now, uh, it may have some elements of a hoax to it, but uh, it's it's really there's a big uh, philosophical difference. And I, I've just wondered why why the newspapers continually call us a hoax. Uh, and uh, and I'm not judging Irving or anything, even though you know you've been probably following the case. But it is a, it is really uh, uh, when you when you uh, when you involve yourself in in uh, forging checks and and uh, setting up phony bank accounts and and then cashing <laughs> you know almost a quarter of a million dollars of checks. That ain't no hoax no more. That's a that's a fraud. And and yet yet they uh, they continually call it a, a hoax. I'm curious why this is so. I don't know. Uh, maybe it's because the language is getting more imprecise. And somebody made an interesting point today. I think it was you, Jerry, wasn't it? That that, that a hoax sounds more exciting in uh, newspaper uh, headlines, whereas a fraud sounds just like uh, a fraud. That's all, you know. And and whereas a hoax sounds very exciting, but yet what it does is it is it confuses the public. I think it it makes the public think that this is just a you know big funny thing. That the guy did, uh, but uh, that's not <laughs> not necessarily so. If you were on the receiving line of uh, you know losing six hundred and fifty grand, uh, it's more than a joke. However, uh, the, uh, the the problem, of course, the, the language is very imprecise these days. Anyway, since uh, most people uh, don't don't really worry themselves, especially uh, oddly enough, writers. I I, I hear uh, 
I hear this constantly being used. Very, there are other terms too that are that are misused like that. Like, for example, today we constantly confuse sex and love. They're called the same thing to most people, and they're they're two really uh, often uh, opposing things. <laughs> uh, ironically enough, <laughs> they really are, and 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 yet uh, yet uh, they the, 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 it's often uh, you know it's used uh, simultaneously and uh, almost in the same context, and so language can be can be a real a deadly tool because if you call what a guy does a hoax. People tend to laugh at it and think it's kind of groovy and it's funny. Hoaxes are funny and groovy. Frauds are not. So people tend to, to want to use the word hoax. Now, uh, yet uh, unless, unless it happened to you, then of course, then it's something else again. But uh, the, uh, I, I just, just was curious about this. I wonder, I wonder if I'm the only one. I, I haven't heard many people bring that point up. Have you heard? I don't know. It's a... Uh, uh, yeah, don't 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 assume that this is a c- connection. This is W O R New York. <laughs> I'm sitting here talking about hoaxes and frauds. <laughs> oh no 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 no! New York may be, but not us. No, by George, we're standing here, stalwart. But uh, I I uh, I uh, have you ever have you ever been around where where a real fraud has been perpetrated, a real one? Uh, I've been around where hoaxes have been perpetrated, real. Genuine. For example, I'll give you an example of a hoax. Uh, a friend of mine, one time on a on a uh, radio show, he uh, he was he was doing a uh, a classical show, a recorded classical music show, and he's somewhat of a classical music expert. That he's famous for this, and, uh, and he's very good, and he's very serious on the air. He's one of these extremely serious types, as classical type tend to be. You know they. And that was Kierkel listing nine. So it's a special way of talking. It's a very closely related to guys giving sermons. You know, the ser- a special voice for sermons. And as God, uh, they use always that type of delivery. And so he he was one night, in spite of the, his air sound, he has a curious way about him. Uh, he has a strange twist of mind. And one night. He was sitting in the studio, and they had a record on, uh, a big 25-minute, 30-minute symphony going on there, and, and he played the piano a bit. And just, just uh, he was a noodling-type piano player, but uh, he used to like to sit at the piano. They had a big uh, Baldwin Grand in the studio, and he was sitting at the studio piano while this music was playing, and he had the monitor turned down, and he was just noodling away at the piano, just sort of extended chord lines and disjointed notes he was playing. And he was not a pianist either. Remember that. And nor did he even pretend to be. He was just playing around with the piano. And he finished playing, and he was about to go on. He had another maybe three or four, five minutes before he was to go on the air. When the engineer who was working the show with him then threw a switch and played back to him what he had just recorded. See, the engineer was recording his piano playing just for kicks, see? And he played it back through the monitor speaker. Well, he, he did something very interesting with it. He didn't just play it back. He took the thing and he inverted it. He played it back, but played it back backwards to him. And he speeded it up. 
and it had a very strange sound. So my friend sitting in there listening to it, he laughed like mad, you know. It sounded great, but it was very strange sounds. And it was about a seven-minute long thing, just a noodling. And curiously enough, when they did that, it had a complete sound to it. So, yeah, it did. It had a sound like it was a completed thing. So uh, with this, this mind he had, about five minutes later, he goes on the air, and he says that they have a, a recording that was made by a, a fine young Italian composer. And uh, uh, a young Italian composer who had caused a great deal of excitement in, uh, in Italy during the war, and this is World War II, and during, because, because of World War II restrictions on communication, one thing or another, he was not heard much outside of Italy. Was a very important part of it, and and uh, and unfortunately he he was he was drafted into the Italian army late in World War II and was killed fighting the Germans. And there's only a few examples of his music around, and here's an example of one of the things that he wrote, and it was recorded by the composer himself and done in an Italian studio. And uh, there are only a half dozen examples of his compositions around, but he had a great budding genius, and so. He played this and didn't say any more about it. He just played it and then went on to the next one, which is a Sibelius Symphony or something, and just went on with the rest of the show. Well, I want to tell you, it really hit the fan. Within about 15 minutes, the, the, the calls and the mail started to come in, and by the end of the week, he was inundated with people saying it was a fantastic, strange, exciting piece of music. And, uh, and would he please uh, find more of this and play it for, for them? And uh, so he... he uh, now, wait a minute. I, no, I, I'm, I'm changing the story. The actual story was that he said that, that, uh, that this young man uh, had not done much recording since. Yes, he was not killed in the war. That's right. He had not done much recording since, but there were a few recordings that were around and that uh, he, was still, he was still composing in Italy and uh, was uh, about to work on a major work and so forth. And so he... He, he then read a few of the letters. When the letters started to come in, he thought that was kind of a gag or a great joke, see? So he goes into the studio, and again, he turns out one of these things in about ten minutes. He just noodles around on the piano, and uh, my friend, the engineer, recorded them, and uh, this time he, 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 he really did it. He put two tracks on top. You know, he folded two tracks together, and he, he speeded it up a bit on the tape, and, gee, it sounded great. So they played this next one. And uh, it was a very involved composition. This one, you see, it had two separate themes and all, <laughs> and it was it was really uh, it was a it was a hit. So he he, he began to do this on a, on a regular basis. Like every couple of weeks, he would play a, a, another one of these rare selections, and uh, always moan the fact that there were only a half a dozen or so of them available. Say that they were very rare, and so uh, uh, the 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 interest began to grow. Well, then then my friend really carried it. Further, you see, he announced he announced that uh, that uh, that this young man is about to go on a concert tour, and by George, what does he do but get a call from the local big major conservatory of music? It would be like getting a call from Juilliard, and uh, this major uh, director called him up and he said, "That's fantastic. That guy's wonderful." He says, "It's very beautiful stuff," and he said, "I've heard of him, you know." He said, "I'd heard of him, but this is the first opportunity that I've ever had to hear his actual work." And so by this time, my friend is flipping. He just thinks, it's, you know, it's great. And, and he then announces on the air that he was about to come to the United States and would make a personal appearance in the town there, sponsored by the conservatory. 
And, of course, there were a lot of, a lot of letters coming in, everybody saying when, you know, where, how, where you get the tickets and all that stuff. And uh, one night, about two weeks after the great furor, uh, he announced with a great sorrow that uh, they had just gotten over the newswire that this man had been killed in an automobile accident. That's, that's the way that he really did it. He had been killed in an automobile accident, and this great young genius had been nipped in the bud just when he was about to embark on a world career. Well, <laughs> well now, there's an example of a hoax, you see. Uh, that was very different uh, from, from a fraud. Now, had, had, uh, had he played these pieces of music and claimed that they were, let's say, long-lost selections by, say, for example, uh, Prokofiev, and then sold them to, say, Mercury Records for $200,000, and then took off to Switzerland... That would have been something else again. That would have been a fraud. There's a big difference between fraud and hoax. And, uh, and so, so uh, I, I hope, you know, this, this, uh, did anybody comment on that? The people, anybody, nobody, nobody's mentioned it. Well, it's funny uh, that, the, that, the, uh, that the, the whole world of hoaxes is, uh, you know, filled with all kinds of things. But the, the, the essence of a hoax, really, primarily, is that the hoax is an extended practical joke and that's the point of the hoax a fraud is not a practical joke a fraud is deception to gain money that's a big difference yeah <laughs> it's a classical difference and uh and in in, in court of law they'll, 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 this is this is a crucial difference and so when people you keep using the term hoax in newspapers relating it to this particular case they're doing it uh, by using the language quite uh, loosely, quite loosely, uh, a, a fraud may have elements of a hoax. <laughs> you know, speaking of, <laughs> I, I don't want you to, I don't want you to relate it to these flying birds here. Uh, <laughs> these things do fly. I might point out. <laughs> you know, I want to tell you, I'm going to be very honest with you. When I first heard about these things, no, I'm going to lay it out on the line. I might as well be honest about it. Somebody, when, when I was first approached, when, when uh, the salesman came and he said, hey, he said, uh, he said uh, now look, he says, don't, don't, don't fly out of your chair. Don't, don't hit me. He said, but how would, you like to, <laughs> how would you like to have flying birds on your show? I said, flying birds? I mean, you know, I mean, here I'm a grown-up man. Here I'm selling plastic birds all of a sudden after all this. And he says, yeah, how would you like to sell flying birds? Well, my first impression was, oh, come on, you know. These little birds on the end of a stick that you see at the you know carnivals and stuff and all that. So I said, "Come on, what do you mean? Am I am I a pitchman? You know, pitchman here? Going to set my little thing up on the boardwalk and start selling shells and stuff like that? You know, and plastic mice and stuff?" He says, "No." He said, "They really, really are great." So I said, "Well, I'm not going to say a word. I'm not going to tell you I'm going to do these or not until I see one of them." And that's that's you know the way to do it. And sure enough, a couple of days later, he brings in this plastic bird, and it's a—it's really not plant. Well, it's a very thin, uh, special type of composition, and and it came in. First of all, it's very pretty, and I wound the darn thing up in the office, and it flew the length of the office. And one of the ladies almost passed out. I mean, it just flew right past her. She's sitting there typing away, and all of a sudden, this thing just went right past Elsie, going full blast, you know, and leaving a wake behind it. And the thing even sounds like a bird in a nutty kind of way. So, uh, you know, at that point, I says, well, you know. So if you'd like to buy a plastic bird, friend, that's your problem. I mean, <laughs> the wingspan is 16 inches, and uh, for $3.98, uh, you, you can't go wrong, because they're guaranteed to fly, and they'll do it. 
And you have two choices, white dove or yellow bird, about the same size. They're just a different design. Actually, just the color's different. One's white, one's yellow. And the price is three ninety eight. postage paid. New York State residents, of course, add tax. I add tax to everything I do. It comes packed in a box with instructions, and it goes. And the uh, you don't send money, send check or money order to Flying Birds. And for crying out loud, don't make it out to me. Department S, Post Office Box 1909, Grand Central Station, New York, New York. That's a third issue. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I couldn't believe it. it I, this happened to me. You know, mo- most people have an idea that, say, America is, is the land of plastic. You know, we, we got so many, so many uh, constant uh, uh, cliches about ourselves. Now, let's just take the idea that, you know, America is supposed to be such a fantastically violent country. Well, can you imagine what would happen in our country if a sports team got mad at a, at a decision by a referee and stomped them to death on the field? <laughs> well, now that, that, that note that I just read is, is, uh, just happened, right? Now, listen to this one now. We're, we always hear that we're plastic, right? That people keep saying plastic. Well, I was in a place here a couple of years ago in London, and it really was great. You know, it was really, really great. And uh, it, was, it had all the elements, you know. It, you, you could just feel Doctor Watson sitting there in the next in the next cubby hall with with the Sherlock Holmes and Moriarty's going by. You know, it had a feel, the true feel of Victorian England about it. And you could smell the the uh, Guinness Stout and you know, the bitters and you, yeah, the arf and arf and all the rest. Of it. Yeah, oh yeah, the the barmaids were back there pulling the bar. So you know, the big uh, the big. Uh, uh, handles that they run this this uh, British beer out of them, and it was just great. See, and I'm sitting back in in the back of the place there with a guy, and we're talking about this. And I said, "Gee, this this only in England." He says, I, I, "You know, me me being a typical naive type American, I said only this is just great." And, you know, look look at just look at the walls are in here. Just just look at those walls. Look at those beams. Look at those beams. Oh my God! Look at that! Look at that fantastic! Look at that old plaster up there, back of the bar. Look at that. Why, you could just feel Elizabethan England. I could just see Ben Johnson coming in here, trying to get an idea for a new play. And I, can, I could see, uh, I could see uh, William Shakespeare walking by. I'm thinking maybe, sure, yeah, yeah, I think I'll drop in for a beer, you know. And, uh, yeah, after a rehearsal, they're doing Henry IV or something, you know, and he drops by for a beer. I said, look at that. It's fantastic. Well, the guy who was an Englishman, he, he, he leans over the, the old scarred table that we were sitting at, the table that looked like it was carved out of the actual oak that grew at Runnymede, you know, <laughs> that sheltered the barons as they signed the Magna Carta. Uh, he, he, he leans across and he says, he says look, he said, uh, he said, this place was only here about six months. I said, oh, come on, look at those beams. He said, well, I don't know how they do it. He said, but this place is only, it used to be a hot dog stand here. Well, you know, I thought, well, I'm being put on. I thought he was putting me on, so I went out, and, and, and this has been remained with me ever since a kind of mystery. Now, all of a sudden, it is solved. It is solved, yeah, in a nutty, nutty way. I'm, I'm <laughs> One of my spies sends me a, a, little, a little note out of the Bridgeport Sunday Post, Bridgeport, Connecticut, you know. Well, Bridgeport Sunday Post, listen to this. This is London, and uh, I'm quoting this. And then, then think... You know, think, you know, good old England, so legitimate and all, you know, in plastic America. Listen to this. Uh, this is our, uh, uh, <clears throat> this is our Tudor room. 
says Tico Alaluf, maker of portable plastic pubs. He's showing a visitor samples of the fake old English pubs that a suburban London firm has exported to countries all over the world, from Iran to the Bahamas. Hey, look at that fireplace, Alaluf says, pointing to what looks exactly like an Elizabethan hearth built of solid bricks, sturdy oak beams, and ancient age-worn stone. <laughs> no, uh, tap it. Tap it, he says. A hollow sound undercuts the romantic atmosphere. The ancient pub fireplace is a plastic shell made last month in a factory. The ceiling of ye old Tudor room is made of dark brown plastic bars designed to look like oak beams spaced between white plastic sections designed to look like plaster. Uh, it's not finished yet. Alaluf says, we have uh, to put in the final age-old shine on it, little age-old shine on it, and uh, add some of the authentic smoke stains that we have. We've, we spray that on, you know, it comes in a can, the authentic smoke stains, and it'll all be done. His firm designs, builds, and exports pubs made from prefabricated sections of plastic and other cheap materials. About the only thing in them that is real is the beer, <laughs> and in some taverns that's not true either. They come in different styles. The smallest budget model is called the Stag, a small, authentic two-door pub with fake beam and plaster exterior. It sells for 20400 It can be shipped in prefabricated sections, all crammed into one trunk. You just put it together, you know, on the front of the A&P. Bigger, fancier models with authentic-sounding names like the William Shakespeare or the Queen Victoria include plush, ornate Victorian styles and range up to $2,400. And, uh... Now, I'm so, that, that's, that, that answers the question. You know, speaking of, uh, of being taken like that, I'll tell you, I won't even describe where it is, but there's a place, there's a place down in Florida, and, and I saw this, I saw this, but you, it's, it's almost impossible to believe that a guy could do this, but he did it. There is a boat down there that is an absolute magnificent copy. It is, it, well, it is, it is, it is an 18th century Brig. Yes, it's a beautiful ship. I mean, the real thing. And the wood is ancient and old, and, and it, 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 it's sitting there in the water, and it's got, you know, the masts are old. You can see the, the worn wooden spars and, and the, the ancient ropes on this thing. It's fantastic. It really is. It's, it's, it's an eerie thing. And people uh, spend a lot of money to go out on a a tour on this, go out on a cruise on this thing. See, they go out in the thing, and, and they go at night especially. It's very romantic. And it's the real thing. It, really, it looks absolutely, absolutely, totally detailed, totally correct, you know, just beautiful. Well, <laughs> I'm looking at the ship. See, I'm, I'm, I'm just looking at it. I'm on another boat, and, and I see this thing. It's just fantastic. So I said to the crewman on this boat that I was on that was docked next to it. This is a working dock there. I said, "Gee, look at that thing! That's fantastic! Look at it. It's, it's amazing. How do they how do they keep it this long? See, that, that's a what a that thing's a, must be two hundred and fifty years old." And uh, he doesn't say much. He just sort of looks at it and, and uh, he says, "Yeah, it's uh, very interesting." I said, "Boy, look at the, look at those spars! Look at look at that! Look at those ancient ropes! Look at those lines! It's just it's fantastic." Boy, it would be great to go out on an old ship like that. And uh, is it is it really seaworthy? He says, "Come over here and sit down." This gnarled, <laughs> this gnarled deep sea water type sailor who is now 
doing little uh, little charter jobs out of uh, Florida, and I sat down on the on the bulkhead there. There's you know just sitting there next to him, and he says, "Look," he says, "that boat is two years old." He says, "I know the guy that built it. He's a friend of mine." Said he built this in a tremendous uh, amount of money to build this thing, but he built it exactly the way. He says, but you see, it's a fake. He said he spends all of his time rubbing the wood with beeswax. He says, you get this yellow beeswax and you rub it, and it antiques the wood. And he says his crew, every day, they rub this thing with beeswax, and they have special shellacs they rub it that, that give it an antique feeling. And he said, it's, 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 a, it's a total fake. He says, this, this ship is less than two years. As a matter of fact, he said, the one you're sitting on right now is about 15 years, about seven times older than that one. I said, but ours has got a fiberglass hole. What do you mean? He said, come on. He says, what do you think that's got under the water line? <laughs> so, so, you know, I, I, I'm sitting there, you know, and I'm, I'm examining this thing, and I said, it's, it's a fantastic. You know, I, I wonder how many of you know one of the newest rackets that's, spra that's uh, springing up. And, uh, and this is something I, I don't think the public is is aware of. Very few people. You'd have to be somewhat of a specialist to to be aware of this new ding dong that's going up. Now, you've probably heard faint echoings of the value of antique automobiles. Now I'm talking about real antique cars. I'm talking now an antique car is not necessarily valuable merely because it is old. There's a, there's a lot of things that go into what makes an antique car valuable. There's several classes. There's the antique and there's the classic vintage. These are all different classifications. But what makes them valuable, one, is, is the, original, uh, the original rarity of the car itself, even during its day. Some cars were made in very limited numbers, even during their day. So naturally, the car like that would be rarer, and the value of it may be enhanced because it is rare. All right, that's only one side of it. The next thing is the design itself. Was it, was it a great design, or was it simply a hack design? Uh, and its only value is that it's old. See, it's just like uh, not all Renaissance paintings are as valuable as others, They're depending on the artist, you see. Well, uh, so some of these cars now are going for prices up to sixty-five, seventy thousand. In fact, uh, some of the great galleries like Southby's, which is a great uh, uh, auction clearinghouse gallery for for magnificent works of art, ranging all the way from Rembrandt and original Beethoven manuscripts, have now been have now been selling cars. You know, they've been auctioning off great cars. Well, now here's the racket. That, that quite obviously, since a car can go now for seventy, eighty thousand dollars, a very, uh, a very esoteric classic, some of them can go even higher than that. Some are almost priceless. What would spring up naturally? That's right, counterfeit. Well, now, <laughs> it is uh, that that gangs of guys, excellent technicians, of course, usually in very secluded places like. Uh, uh, a garage in Italy or someplace like that, you see, where it can be done without getting too much suspicion going, have actually created absolutely, well, to the naked eye, to the, to the ordinary walking around person, totally undetectable replicas of a genuine car, including even the original type of engine and everything. These are not just uh, 
uh, like the fake Model A that they recently turned out a few years ago. I'm talking about the real thing. And, and they even use a lot of the genuine parts, the original parts that were actually used in these cars. So what has sprung up then is another kind of expert. And this is the guy who is the authenticator, just like in the art world, there is an authenticator who, who will take a look at your, your painting, which is supposed to be by uh, El Greco, and he will know the kind of paint and the kind of canvas, the kind of brush stroke and, and the kind of uh, sizing and everything else that was, went into making up a, a painting of by El Greco. Well, that's what they do now. They, they actually take minute samples of the paint to determine whether or not this kind of paint was used by this type of car, whether it's really that old. They will take tiny samples of the wood used in the spokes on the wheel to determine whether or not this wood is really that, and, and whether or not it really was the kind that they actually used, uh, whether they used hickory or oak. Uh, <laughs> and it's a very involved thing. Did you know about that racket? That today it is well known among automobile uh, aficionados that uh, in the last few years there have been several magnificent fakes that have uh, won prizes in international competitions for great cars that actually were new. They're, they're, they're new cars. They're, they're not fakes. You know, they're not, they're not antiques at all. Now, uh, there's another one that's beginning to spring up, which probably many of you haven't heard of, and that is the fake, the fake aircraft, the fake ancient aircraft. Now... Uh, there are certain aircraft that are almost priceless. There are no known examples of these aircraft known to exist at this time. For example, the famous Fokker triplane. Did you know that there is no known authentic Fokker triplane that still exists? Uh, no, not a known one. Now, there have been many replicas made. But whenever you see one on a movie or something, this is a replica. Uh, but there are no known actual Fokker triplanes. The last known one, ironically enough, was in a museum in Berlin, uh, and was the, the last record of it. It was destroyed in an air raid in 1939 or 40 or 41, something like that. And uh, this particular museum was hit, and uh, that was the end of the airplane. But uh, so what, what follows then, that if, if you were to suddenly announce that uh, in a barn in, uh, in Belgium, you had discovered, knocked down, uh, a, an authentic uh, Fokker triplane, a DR-1 triplane, a beautiful example of it, and uh, you have had it, uh, you've had it restored, put back together. You can realize what this would be worth. Uh, it would be worth a lot of money to museums and everybody else. So uh, this, this, is <laughs> this is beginning to spring up. The, the, uh, the, fake, uh, the fake creator of what could be called technological artifacts. Now, how do you like that? Uh, and, and most people don't, don't, uh, you know, they don't know about these things. And, and there, are a lot of, there are a lot of things now today that have, have achieved the value that didn't have value a few years ago. Uh, for example, the Tiffany lamps, uh, you know, just a few years ago were in the attics all over the place, and you could get them at the, at the Salvation Army for a couple of bucks. Now they're worth a lot of money. Well, there are fake Tiffany uh, you know, guys that have, have sprung. Of course, some, some of them are just obviously, they're just selling copies. But I'm talking about real, authentic, fake uh, counterfeits that are sold as the real thing. Uh, this, this is beginning to pop up all over the place. You know, speaking of, uh, of uh, that kind of thing, you know, there's a place, uh, and I will not give you the address of it, but there's a place that turns out fake, authentic, World War II 
Nazi regalia. Uh, you've seen people buying these, these uh, you know, Nazi medals and uh, collector's items and that. Well, there's a place that turns that stuff out. And they fake it up, you know. They they antique it. <laughs> they uh, you can get you can get a, an Iron Cross first class, and uh, you know they, uh, the kind with a big ribbon on it and so on. You can get you can get all this stuff, and they 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 sell this stuff all over. I I, I went into a an antique store in uh, in Seattle here a couple of months ago, and uh, here was all this stuff, and it, and it was military and, and you might say military artifacts. And uh, all kinds of stuff, uh, party badges from uh, high party officials in the in the SS and the Volkssturm and all stuff. And I'm looking at this stuff, see, and, and I was very innocent at the time. I look at, gee, I wonder where they got all this stuff. Look, it's fantastic, and just tremendous collection of all this stuff. And I asked the guy behind the counter, I said, where did this stuff come? Oh, he said, well, you know, I said, uh, there's a lot of places around that people have collected this stuff, and uh, we we handle it now on consignment. And uh, I looked at the stuff, and I wasn't interested in it, but I was fascinated with the fact they had it all. So it wasn't until a few days later that I discovered that this is a thriving, uh, a thriving business. Uh, so, so uh, there's all kinds of there's all kinds of chicanery going on today. You just never know. Did I, did I tell you about the, the the most elaborate one that I ever heard of? Yeah, I knew I knew one guy that bought a new, very expensive automobile, and he bought it from a dealer. And the dealer himself was taken. He didn't know this happened. It was the car was delivered to him, you know, off of a truck. You know, these delivery trucks that come, and it was way out in the Midwest. And so this 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 fifteen thousand dollar car was delivered. And a couple of days later, the uh, guy's driving along, and the car doesn't ride right. He just doesn't, you know, it it, it isn't right. And for fifteen thousand dollar car, you should, you know, why why is it? Is it riding so bad? You know, it's squeaking and stuff. And so he didn't know anything about cars and. And uh, so he just figured it needed a grease job or something, and and uh, so he did. He had it greased, and he went on a couple of weeks like that. And finally one day he says, well, heck with it. I'm going to take it into the dealer and see what's the trouble. So he took it into the dealer, and the dealer, they put it up on the on the rack, and they couldn't believe it that somebody along the line, either the transport company who was transporting the cars out there, somebody had removed all, all the expensive shock absorbers that were the actual authentic ones from this type of car. Let's say it was a Mercedes or something. And it replaced them with a Sears Roebuck type Ford replacement, and they painted them black. <laughs> so there were hundreds of dollars of, of uh, fake parts on his brand new automobile. And he didn't, he didn't know it uh, until they put it up on blocks. And to this day, they never found out where the parts went. How, who did it? Was it the trucking company? Who knows, you know? So, uh, you know, it's an exciting time. You can... Oh, sure, yeah, yeah. Horses. Have you heard of great fake horses? You haven't heard of that? Well, you don't know about that, do you? Oh, that's, 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 a, that's, that's one of the worst of them. Sure, they have these big horse auctions out in, in places, you know, and you pay $400,000 for a thoroughbred. Are you really getting them? Are you really getting that horse? No. <laughs> And, and you know the tattoos? Did you know they tattoo them inside their lip with a special number? Well, naturally, the, the smart guys have dis discovered a way to put new tattoos in it. You know, you know, is that actually your wife, your witch, you know, Fred? That could be almost anybody. This is WOR New York. Stay tuned for John Scott in the news.
Author Clifford Irving is said to be writing another book, this one relating to his involvement in the Howard Hughes hoax. He would use the royalties, according to sources close to him, to pay back McGraw-Hill. The publishing firm is demanding $900,000 from Irving and breaks it down this way. 650000 it gave Irving to give to Hughes. 100000 it advanced in royalties. A $15,000 advance for expenses. And $135,000 it cost the company in legal fees and examinations and investigations. The sources say Irving hopes to complete the book by June 15th, one day before he's scheduled to be sentenced. He and his wife pleaded guilty today to the Hughes fabrication, and he could receive up to 13 years imprisonment. Mrs. Irving, it's felt in some quarters, might be set free. While in prison, if he goes to prison, Irving would not be permitted to write. New York horse owners and trainers threaten today to pull out and ship elsewhere unless the strike at the Big A now in its second week is ended quickly. Speaking for the horsemen, trainer Eugene Jacobs said, although we are not parties to the controversy and take no position on the merits, we are the ones with the most to lose. He urged the striking paramutual clerks to return to work while a settlement is negotiated, and he called on Governor Rockefeller to intervene personally in the dispute. About the only thing new in the negotiations is that State Mediation Board Chairman Vincent McDonnell is sitting in at the bargaining table, but he reports no appreciable progress. The talks resume at 11.30 tomorrow morning. Only eight hours to primary poll time in Florida, with Governor George Wallace still regarded as the big favorite in the post-parade. What perhaps should prove more exciting is the duel between Senators Muskie and Humphrey for the runner-up spot. In the early days of his Florida campaign, the question was, can Muskie overtake Wallace? Now analysts are wondering, can Humphrey overtake Muskie? WOR's Lester Smith, who's covering the primary, spent most of the evening following Mayor Lindsay. John Lindsay's final Florida primary appearance tonight turned out to be a tactical disaster. The New York City mayor, who was expected to score heavily, was black.